This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. All right, here we go with another podcast. And Rob, it's another week. It's another Green Party leader steps down. First, we had Andrew Weaver announcing he's going to step down as the provincial Green Party leader. And now Elizabeth May is stepping down as the federal leader. Why is she stepping down? I think a lot of us anticipated that Elizabeth May might be done following the federal election results where the Greens now have three seats, but really it was just holding one seat they picked up and winning one in Atlantic Canada. We all kind of thought, mm, I don't know, that's not the breakthrough that Elizabeth May had been promising for. Maybe her days are numbered. She's officially come out and said, that's it. I resign as leader effective immediately. Interim leader Joanne Roberts, a well-known Victoria media personality for her time as CBC Radio, now lives in Atlantic Canada, has failed at least a couple times to win uh, in elections and does not have any political experience to note. So I would imagine that's more of a caretaker leadership until the party can get uh, ready for a new leadership convention next year. But it's interesting, Smitty, because now you have two Green Parties, the Federal Green Party and the BC Green Party at this kind of critical juncture where the big flamboyant, outspoken, uh, high-profile leaders who kind of brought those parties to the mainstream and achieved some level of mainstream success. Andrew Weaver and Elizabeth May are both stepping back. How do you view the risk that that presents for the Greens to have those two big names no longer in the fold? What do you think when you hear that? Well, I think it's tough for both of them because uh, there's no real heir apparent for either party to sort of step in as a new leader. And I would recommend to listeners the the really excellent analysis piece that you wrote on this this week in The Sun that people can still find online. And I thought there was a lot of really sharp analysis of, of the situation that the, for the Green Party, it's it's both an uh, an opportunity for renewal and to get vibrant new leadership in the party, but also a problem in that there does not appear to be someone who would be an obvious kind of go-to choice for a new leader. Like if you're looking at the provincial party, maybe the two current MLAs uh, in the legislature might both be interested in it. Federally, maybe you get a leader from Eastern Canada. And I wonder if Joanne Roberts, for example, might be interested in the permanent leadership where the party has made a breakthrough there and elected an MP for the first time. It's interesting to watch the federal Greens shift to Atlantic Canada because not only did they pick up another seat there, but they also have in Prince Edward Island an eight-person Green Provincial Caucus, which is actually the official opposition in PEI. And the leadership convention for the federal Greens will be in Atlantic Canada uh, next year. And so I wonder, does that change the... What has traditionally been this West Coast grassroots environmental kind of feeling around the Greens to have maybe the power base shift to Atlantic Canada? Does that change at all the Green movement? I guess the, the counterpoint to that question would be how many elections now? 13 years under Elizabeth May as party leader and they have not broken through. The, the provincial Greens have done a little bit of a better job. But the, despite this feeling like a West Coast centered movement, there's still not huge gains on the West Coast for the party. So maybe the federal party is going to try its uh, hand of luck out in Atlantic Canada. Yeah, it feels like a disappointment after the, the recent federal election where the, the federal Green Party didn't get that breakthrough that you mentioned, right? Like they were really targeting 
several ridings on Vancouver Island where they thought they could maybe knock off the NDP in some of those ridings, and it, and it didn't happen. And it certainly was a disappointment. And, and like you said, there was a lot of speculation on election night that Elizabeth May would have to step down as a result. And maybe the only surprise is that it's come this this soon. On the other hand, I think it's uh, it's a real benefit that they now have this kind of beachhead, sort of so to speak, on the East Coast. Like the fact that they were managed to, to elect an MP out there. Like you said, there's an official opposition there provincially. So I think it's a real opportunity for the party to kind of broaden its appeal and get away from maybe kind of a stereotype that it was a kind of, you know, Vancouver Island, granola munching, hippie kind of regional party, but that it's it's a real legit uh, movement um, that can potentially start gaining steam, especially with the ascendancy of climate change as such a as such a huge and important issue for all political parties. But for for the Green Party, that's sort of naturally right in their kind of wheelhouse as a major issue that they can feed off of and and generate momentum going forward if they can find a good leader for both parties. I think. Well, it's amazing that climate change is such a is such a massive issue right now. There's yeah. rallies across the country, and yet the Greens couldn't translate that into electoral that's success. True, yeah. It was. Uh, uh, deeply disappointing for them, I think. There's there's a couple ways to look at it. Uh, one way is that, you know, kind of Andrew Weaver and Elizabeth May legitimize these parties. They show that you can be a hardworking elected official as a Green. Voting for Green is not voting for some sort of crazy weirdo chemtrails party. You know, yeah. when you elect someone from the Greens, they actually do as good or better a job uh, than the other politicians. Elizabeth May was voted by her peers parliamentarian of the year one year. So, they made it safe to vote green or consider voting green, and they attracted a bunch of people. And one of the points some green insiders are making is that after so many years as leader, you now have green organizers who've gone through by-elections, federal elections, provincial elections. They've branched out into municipal elections. You have green candidates who are now on municipal councils in uh, Richmond, Burnaby, Squamish, Fernie, Victoria, and they leverage that kind of, um, you know, local green organization in their work. And so in some ways, if Elizabeth May and Andrew Weaver were like the, the booster rockets that got those ships up into space, you, eventually the booster rocket is disengaged and off it goes and the kind of the, the, uh, the rocket carries on under its own momentum. And the greens are hoping that's where they're at so that these new volunteers can redirect the party, maybe. Maybe in a way outside of those big personalities like Andrew Weaver and Elizabeth May, who've defined the party for so long, but they're going to have to hold the public's attention. They're going to have to maintain some level of legitimacy and some public uh, acceptable face or people could very quickly turn on turn on the party for sure. Yeah, I, I think both of these leaders can look back with some pride in what they've accomplished. Now, that said, I thought Elizabeth May ran a ran kind of a bad campaign in the recent federal election. I, I thought the the message from the the Green Party was just not properly focused and it didn't really kind of get that kind of appeal and clear kind of engagement with voters that they needed. I thought it was kind of strategically weird that she was campaigning with her dog and she had her a, a picture of her dog on the side side of the campaign bus. I mean, really? I mean, I mean, I mean, some people might think it's kind of cute and funny, but I just thought it was not totally professional. And she was so mad at the NDP in this election. And we talked about that before, and you've written about it, about how really nasty this got with the NDP between these two parties, right? And she was really angry. Even on election night, she was complaining about it. And the next day, you know, really, really bitter at the NDP. And she she kind of feels like 
the reason she didn't achieve this breakthrough in this federal election was because the NDP played dirty. And I just thought, you know, it came off to me as a little sour grapes because I thought that it was her own campaign mistakes that gave the NDP the openings to attack her. And they were certainly relentlessly negative against her, but they were using her own words against her. And so I thought she made some fundamental errors. And I think maybe it's a good time for a change for both parties, even though, like I said, they can look back with some uh, pride in what they've accomplished. But I think a, a leadership change is probably a good idea. So here's a question then. Does the next green leader provincially and federally, do they keep going high when others go low, as they put it? Because you often hear from the Greens, well, we don't do politics that way. We do politics differently. We don't like negative, uh, you know, attacks. We don't like personal attacks. Which is fine, um, you know, but at the same time, when your opponents are are brawling with you, when they're swinging a steel pipe at you, when they are playing as tough as the NDP did in this last election, where they're just going for the jugular, can you expand the green base by just rising above it? Or do you rise so far above it, you're floating way up in the clouds and no one ever sees you anymore? And I, I wonder if the next green leaders need to have a bit more Brooklyn brawler to them, a bit more... You know, if uh, we can't change politics by ourselves right now, but we can play at least part of the defense uh, game. Otherwise, they they just get hammered by skilled veteran backroom technicians in the New Democrats. I think maybe a combination of both is what they need. I think they need a a leader on on both parties going who can be in, inspire kind of an idealistic kind of sense in people that they are somewhat different. They are more principled than other parties. Uh, they are pursuing an agenda that is profound and important, especially in the era of climate change and all the uh, concern about it. But at the same time, I think they've also got to get a little bit more skilled at kind of the the retail side of politics and how it's waged in our country and in BC as well. Because if they don't, I think the NDP potentially eat them for lunch, like we just saw in the, in the last federal election. And the other thing you hear from the Greens, just to wrap this topic up, is you and you will continue to hear this in the wake of the last election, including... Um, from some new Democrats, although not quite as many now that they kind of hold an almost balance of power federally, that the, the real uh, crime here is our first past the post voting system that continues to take a party like the Greens that achieved a million, more than a million votes in the popular vote nationally yeah. and still only ended up with three seats. And the Greens make perhaps the most persuasive argument for electoral reform when you look at their numbers, a million yeah. votes, three seats. The Bloc Quebecois get a million and a half votes and get, what, like 20-some-odd yeah. seats because of their concentration. Uh, the Greens need to run national campaigns in order to be part of the leaders' debate and not just look like some weirdo granola-crunching party from the West Coast, like you said. So they stretch themselves to run this artificial national campaign. In the process, they end up with a bunch of wacko candidates that they didn't vet properly, which dragged the leader back yeah. down. Yeah. And they're sort of stuck in that idea that if they did have a different voting system, they'd be a much larger presence. But then the counterpoint to that being, do you change the electoral system that has worked so well for this country to benefit one party like the Greens? And the New Democrats like to make this argument, too, that they need PR or some other voting system in order to truly represent their vote. But it's mainly designed to help them get more seats than they happen to win in the election. So the Greens will continue to push that issue. They tried to make it part of the uh, provincially here, the, the confidence agreement with the NDP that referendum on PR failed, Didn't work. just like it had failed twice before. Right. Uh, you think the issue's dead, but you never know. It could be coming up again in some other way, and well, it'll certainly be the Greens who lead it. In a minority federal government where 
maybe the the opposition parties have got Trudeau right where they want him, can they put some pressure on him, just like Andrew Weaver did and got his referendum here? It didn't work out the way he wanted. But could the uh, the federal NDP put this back on the agenda, knowing that Trudeau needs support from these other parties and to, to continue to govern? Well, if we'll that see. happens, you and I will be here for a special two-hour edition where we explain the droop formula of the STV voting system in great detail. Bring your graphing calculator and a lot of full scap because that'll take uh, many, many hours to explain. PR is not an easy subject at all. To I discuss. might I might be on vacation that week, so you can what? get Vaughn Palmer in here to help you with that. <laughs> all right. Smitty, walk us through this next subject that has been percolating. We haven't talked about it on the podcast, but at least the last couple of weeks really percolating. We have a couple big labor disputes right now, the Metro Vancouver transit strike, which yeah. is a job action uh, with about, what, 5,000 some odd, uh, how many people are there? There's thousands of people. Bus drivers, mechanics, they're employed by the Coast Mountain Bus Company, which yeah. is a subsidiary of TransLink. This is a, a, a job action right now that has started kind of limited job action with an overtime ban by, by mechanics who work on the buses and the sea buses. And bus drivers refusing to wear their Coast Mountain Bus Company uniform to try and get a message out to the public. And it's already delayed a whole bunch of sea bus sailings over to the North Shore. And it has the potential to get nastier this week going forward. Uh, We could start seeing disruptions in bus service. And the union this week is saying that, you know, they're prepared to play hardball and, and maybe you ain't seen nothing yet. They could start going to an overtime ban with bus drivers too and then rotating strikes and maybe even a full out, a full blown strike and a complete walkout that shuts down the whole Metro Vancouver uh, transit system or a big chunk of it anyway, the buses primarily. And um, I remember uh, covering the last major Metro Vancouver transit strike, which was in 2001. And it was nasty. It went on for four months and... Uh, the Gordon Campbell liberal government of the day eventually stepped in and, and put a stop to it and legislated them back to work, but not before a whole a whole lot of people got hurt. And I remember at that time thinking like the people who disproportionately got hurt by that transit strike back then were poor people who relied on the getting the uh, the bus to get around. And if you were driving, if you were driving as a commuter back then, you actually had a uh, an easier commute because with less buses on the road, there was less traffic. Um so I thought it was a, the government took way too long, way back then to intervene in the dispute. And I think there's going to be pressure on the John Horgan government now here to do something, depending on how's the, how this goes, right? Like maybe if they get back to the table, and they start talking, they get a deal. Great. Uh, but right now they're so far apart and both sides talking very tough. No talks going on. There's no bargaining happening. So it was kind of funny to hear Horgan this week saying, we're going to let collective bargaining run its course, which sounds fine, but there's no bargaining going on. The two sides are not talking. So we'll see how this goes. But I think it's dangerous, potentially dangerous politically, too, for the Horgan government. It's interesting to see one of the counter arguments made by the employers, in this case, TransLink, that they've tried to paint this as a $600 million gap over the next 10 years in funding, which they say would mean they have to curtail their plans to expand the transit service all the popular extra bus routes and uh, additional sailings of of sea uh, bus and that type of thing and try to paint it as as if look we finally got the region around a transit expansion plan all the mayors are on board the governments are on board the money's there and now you're telling us we have to cut that back for the union demands which is a very crafty little message that they've come up with and and I think it will resonate in the general public's mind um but it is something that it's a weird 
situation for the Horgan government to be in because they are part of that transit expansion plan. They have part of putting the money on the table. Expanding transit and expanding SkyTrain and expanding the metro system is a core part of John Horgan's government. It was a core part of the election campaign, the young transit-dependent uh, urban voters in Metro Vancouver. And when they get angry at the government for not helping them uh, navigate this ongoing dispute, which is making them be late for work or making them miss appointments, the Horgan government's going to be under a lot of pressure. These are the voters they need to either stay in power or just a few extra ones to win a majority in the next election. And, and Horgan can't afford to wait too long to settle this dispute. But he's balancing that with, as you know, Smitty, that longstanding New Democrat feeling that collective bargaining is important. It's a crucial part. Unions have rights. It's the in, in most arguments, the New Democrats are on the union side, not the employer side. Yeah. The union is the Labour Party. And so, uh, so they're stuck between wanting to support the unions, but an employer in this case which represents a transit vision that the Horgan government desperately needs to be behind. That's a strong card for the management side in this dispute to play, is that the union is asking for so much that it potentially threatens those type of transit expansion projects that you mentioned that are so badly needed. So I think that was that's a kind of a strong argument coming from management. On the other side of it, though, I think the union has been in a, is in a pretty strong position here, too. And I think the union is pretty as quite quite uh, effectively sort of won, won the strike so far, if I could put it that way, because they were out, the, the union was out very early framing this debate as about overtime, you know, like the drivers can't even get a, a break on like an eight hour shift. They don't even get a break. These guys can't even go to the bathroom. You know, that's how bad it is. And if you, and they did a good job in sort of framing the dispute. That's what it's about. Can't get a bathroom break. And a lot of people will say, well, that's not right. And then they'll say they're under, but so I thought the management side of it was slow in kind of responding to that and trying to sort of frame it on their terms, which is, no, it's not really so much about, about benefits and, 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 uh, working conditions like a bathroom break. It's more about money and, and how much the wage demand would cost the system. And so the the management side's done kind of a better job in sort of catching up to the union. But I think the union has been is in a strong position here right now. And I think there's a lot of pressure could come to bear on the provincial government. And here's an interesting thing. This thing has disproportionately hurt so far commuters from the North Shore because the most of the disruption has been on sea bus. So if you're trying to get to work from North Van or whatever and you're using sea bus, you're, you've been feeling the brunt of this work action so far. And the liberals, if you take a look at what the liberals have been saying, look at where's Bowen Ma, the MLA for North Vancouver Lonsdale, who knocked off a liberal cabinet minister in the last provincial election. The liberals held that seat for 20 years before Bowen Ma won it in an upset in the last election. And they would love nothing better than to win that North Vancouver seat back. So the liberals are already saying, where is Horgan? People in North Vancouver commuters are late for work because of John Horgan. So I think in some ways the liberals are kind of hoping this thing does kind of escalate and that they can somehow pin it on Horgan because they yeah. think they might, they might, they might make some good politics out of that. But it's a good point you make that the union has been very careful in the way that they have rolled this out. So it has been incremental job action. It hasn't been a full-blown strike. It the hasn't, union shut, has been smart so hasn't far. shut down the system. They've just slowly ratcheted it up with little things like uniforms and overtime, that type of stuff. And so that has allowed the public to be more sympathetic because they haven't had their entire lives disrupted. 
as opposed to, and you can contrast this with another labor dispute that's going on in the Saanich school district involving CUPE workers, where you have library technicians, custodial staff, support workers, education assistants, uh, maintenance folks who are out uh, on strike, full-blown strike here yeah. for uh, what, we're almost at two weeks, and as the time of recording this podcast, um, they are still out uh, on strike. Parents are ticked. Oh, imagine, imagine being a parent there in your kid's school has been shut down for two weeks. It's the double-edged sword of the power of unions in the education and transportation system where they wield a lot of influence because they can affect your life by shutting down their services. But once they do that, once they go to that step, oh, man. The public can turn very quickly. And two weeks into a strike in which teachers have refused to cross the picket lines, the schools have been closed, parents have been scrambling to find childcare. That is another labor dispute that the Horgan government is trying to stay out of. They don't want to get involved in the QP local 441 versus Saanich school district issue. However, they are involved in it because part of their bargaining mandate that we've talked about in the past, 2%, 2%, 2% over three years is the NDP bargaining mandate, doesn't take into account some of what the union in this case is calling, you know, odd historical imbalances with people doing the same amount of work and the same type of work in Victoria, but getting paid more. And that they say that the Horgan mandate uh, to settle these contracts doesn't take that into account. And the government says, well, actually it does because you can put money aside for those type of things. But anyways, there's some blame that's come on directly on the Horgan government in this labor dispute. And it touches on maybe the larger issue of the teacher's contract, which hasn't been settled yes, with the government right. as well. And this is another one where there is even – there's more direct risk right now uh, for the Horgan government. But probably we'd see this one settled before the transit dispute because people are angry. So You raised a good point there. Don't forget the teachers are still without a contract. And the BC Teachers Federation is one of the more militant public sector unions in our province. And it doesn't matter who's in power. It doesn't matter if you got a labor friendly government in power. They'll, they'll strike. And we've seen in the, in the 1990s, a couple of times they had to legislate teachers back to work. So, you know, that's another kind of warning area where if we're, we're seeing some sort of warning signs of labor unrest with these disputes and it could spread, especially if the teachers go on strike, which is possible. Um, And it's an opening for the liberals, I think. If they can somehow pin that on the NDP, like the the way they're trying to do against that North Vancouver MLA, I mentioned Bowen Moss, who's been very big on public transit. But, you know, the liberals can turn around and say, oh, sure, you're a big supporter of public transit until your union buddies go on strike and shut the system down. And now people in your riding can't get to work on time. That's a pretty powerful argument they can potentially make. Or, you know, here's another one like Maple Ridge, where the NDP won two very closely contested seats in the last provincial election, potentially uh, transit dependent. Those people start getting in, in hurt in those ridings. And, and if the liberals can successfully try to pin it on the NDP, the whole the whole election can turn on something like that in a, in a very closely divided uh, province. And you might be wondering, why don't why doesn't the NDP with so much on the line here just dip into the infinite uh, pot of gold that exists in Victoria when it comes to taxpayer money? It seems like whenever <laughs> yeah. whenever a government really wants something, it can find the money. Yeah. Uh, but uh, this touches on an issue that you and I have as a theme in our previous podcasts, uh, if there are concessions made to this uh, teacher's uh, Saanich QP contract, for example, could have ramifications on the teacher's contract, could trigger Me Too clauses with most of the public sector unions that have already signed. Uh, and that would have uh, enormous hundreds of millions of dollars of implications in the provincial budget. And remember, 
the projected surplus this year is 179 million on a 50 billion dollar uh, budget and that is razor thin and there is not money there to renegotiate all the deals the other argument why doesn't the government just give translink 600 million dollars just say settle this um they governments have historically expected translink to do things like raise property taxes or come up with different levies to fund transit once the government gets in the business of bailing translink out yeah. um that becomes a, just a never-ending ask from translink and translink is has the ability to find revenue but it's an unpopular way to to raise ticket prices and that type of thing. So the government doesn't have the money to maneuver here. If it yeah. did, I'm sure it would just dump it from the it would just make it rain dollar bills in the air until uh, until these problems go away, but they just they don't happen to have the cash. So it puts them in a bit of a an ideological and a financial and a public relations they position. They better call Vince Reddy or, or some other very skilled mediator. Vince Reddy. There's probably might... like a little red phone in the in, in yeah. the premier's office installed on the wall. Doesn't matter which party you are. You pick up the phone. It goes right to Vince Reddy, yeah. famed mediator, solver of many many labor disputes over the years. It's like the bat phone, the Reddy phone. I think he's still around. Yeah, you know, he might he might be involved in this one again. One more quick thing before we uh, wrap it up for this week, uh, Smitty. Uh, just uh, a story that's on the uh, Sun and Province websites about. The government moving with some new legislation on the issue of gas pricing. And this was a hot topic a few months ago. It's kind of cooled a bit, even though gas prices have gone way back up. They're now in the buck 40, buck 50 range again. Remember, the government kind of caved to pressure and announced a public inquiry through the BC Utilities Commission on gas pricing. There was testimony, many complicated charts and binders full of information on pricing and supply and retail margins produced a report that seemed to suggest there was a 13 cent unaccounted for uh, price margin built into the, the the gasoline that you pay at the pump. And the government construed this as, well, you're getting gouged. Yeah. Uh, NDP minister Bruce Ralston came out and said, you are getting, this is proof that you are getting gouged. Yeah. The company said, well, hang on, we can, it's very complicated. We can explain this. And there's currently they're trying to explain that to the commission, which will basically kind of add on an addendum to its report in the next week or so. But the legislation the government's come up with is a Fuel Transparency Act, which is designed to force the oil and gas companies to submit their information to the government, probably the Utilities Commission, maybe on a monthly basis. Here's our margins. Here's our supply volumes. Here's where it's coming from. Here's how we're pricing it. And the government stockpiles this and rolls this data over every month and analyzes it and tries to see whether, in fact, you are getting gouged and conceivably has enough information to know that when the price jumps up, overnight at the pumps, say 20 cents, and everyone's going, what the heck is that about? They've got a big, you know, giant stack of documents in some government office somewhere to analyze what's going on. To me, it is not the solution that most people would like to see. They'd like to see government get in there and smash a couple heads together and make sure that gas prices are kept low. Regulate. Regulate. Regulate gas prices, Some right? provinces have that maximum yeah. gas price per week. It doesn't look So this like... is stopping short of that, right? The hope seems to be that the government is hoping that if the companies have to submit this data, and it's sensitive data, remember, as part of the commission uh, of inquiry, the companies fought having to give over their margins. It was something they didn't feel like the government should have access to because their competitors might use it. Sure, uh, it's commercial information. But if they force the companies to do this all the time, maybe they realize that they can't gouge people as much. They can't just hike the price up 30 cents overnight and and... I think there's a there's a bit of a hope and a whim there that I'm not sure is going to translate into actual action, but uh, the government 
kind of feels like maybe the pressure, similar bills are already in place, I think, in California and some other U.S. states. And maybe the pressure of companies knowing the government has their data, they won't gouge you and I when we go to the pumps as much. I don't know. But it is a, to me, it's another example of how little the provincial government can actually influence the price of gas. It is not something that the province can change with a stroke of a pen. And it is a very complicated file that despite the rhetoric, the very easy rhetoric of my gas prices are too high and you're getting ripped off and let's do something about it. There's not really that much you can do. Well, if you go back to last spring, which was kind of the start of this whole gas price political fight, that's when gas prices really went up dramatically. And the liberals went after Horgan and the NDP, I thought very effectively pointing the finger at Horgan saying, this is your fault. It's the NDP's fault that gas prices are so high. It's because of the carbon tax and it's because of other, other taxes the government has brought in. And I know that the NDP and Horgan were worried about that. They felt like, oh, man, this is we're vulnerable on this. This could hurt us. So the, the gas price inquiry kind of flowed out of that. And they got a report that kind of backed up what they were saying, like you said, about the gouging stuff, because Horgan was saying, we're, this is not about gas taxes. This is about gas, big oil gouging you at the pump. And the public inquiry kind of backed them up a little bit on that. So they were sort of declaring victory on it. The problem with it is that it kind of put a new set of pressures on the government to actually do something about it, right? Okay, so you've spent all this money on this public inquiry. You now say you've discovered evidence of possible price manipulation or something. What are you going to do about it? And Horgan was asked, what about regulation? Because that's the big hammer. Like the government would come in and, you know, put a a, a government order cap on the number on, on the price or something. And Horgan already said he didn't kind of didn't want to do that, that it hadn't really been super effective in other provinces. And it can also backfire because you, you could also you could end up setting up some big bureaucracy that actually increases costs to consumers. So which was a, a warning that was flagged in the report from the inquiry. So I think Horgan was kind of boxed in that he'd kind of raised public expectations that he was going to do something about gas, high gas prices. And there was pressure on him to do it. And this is his answer this transparency thing. So I guess he's hoping that prices moderate and that maybe he can point to it and say, look, I did something. The danger is if prices spike again, despite this transparency regime that they're preparing to bring in, then what is then what does he do? Because then the liberals have go on the attack again. The number one solution, and you hear it from the companies and he, he read it in the report, is more gasoline flowing yeah. through the Trans Mountain Pipeline, the existing one, not even the really contentious one we're talking about expanding, the existing yeah. pipeline from Alberta into BC because we just have both a shortage of gasoline and a very limited capacity here to refine it. We only have basically two refineries and one of them is in the lower mainland. That's the solution. And Bruce Ralston, the trade minister who's on this file, told me again, the premier has brought that up to the prime minister. Ottawa owns the pipeline. Ottawa sets the contracts. You hear from Ottawa, well, you know, we've already got these contracts and there's only so much room and we, we can't do it. But yeah. we've just had a federal election. It's a minority liberal government. Maybe changing the way that pipeline uh, is filled, maybe adding some more gas in there so the British Columbians have more access to it and the price goes down is something that Trudeau will consider 
if for no other reason than to make uh, BC voters happy that, look, he's taken action on it. That is not something the BC government can control, but they could ramp up the pressure if they really wanted to. Maybe uh, head over to Ottawa and kind of make a stink about it kind of thing. So we'll have to keep an eye on that and see what happens. Uh, we're on a couple break weeks here, Smitty, but there's still tons of stuff going on. We will be back next week. Make sure you follow uh, Mike and I on the tweeters. Uh, read Mike in the province and myself in the Vancouver Sun and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play and Stitcher. We'll be back to talk to you next week. See you next week.